the most powerful aspect of framing Stoicism as a as a way of answering the question or plotting a course for developing a good character. I think the benefit is that everything else falls into its little bucket and you know what to do with it. Welcome to Stoa Conversations. In this podcast, Caleb Ontiveros and I discuss the theory and practice of Stoicism. Each week, we'll share two conversations, one between the two of us, and the other will be an in-depth conversation with an expert. This conversation is with Tanner Campbell. Tanner is the founder of Practical Philosophy and the host of the Practical Stoicism podcast, where each day Tanner reads and discusses a short passage of Stoic philosophy. Tanner specializes in bringing Stoicism to a broad audience in a way that is practical and accessible. In this episode, we discuss practical advice for how to navigate our roles and responsibilities as Stoics, Tanner's journey from being skeptical of Stoicism's values to a Stoic advocate, and Tanner's relationship with the Stoic God as the former host of an atheism podcast. Tanner, how are you doing? Welcome to the show. Doing great, and thank you for having me, Michael. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, awesome. Well, I was really excited to talk to you. A couple of reasons, you know, you're the host of the Practical Stoicism podcast, and that's something that I've I've been a fan of. And I think you're you're one of the leaders in kind of spreading Stoicism to a wider audience, but also with a focus on accurate representations of Stoicism. You know, a lot of your work goes into talking about the Stoic texts, interpreting those, breaking those down, but doing that in a way again that's accurate but communicable to people. So I wanted to have this chat and you know chat about some of your perspectives, get some of your insights on maybe the value of Stoicism and, and ways to practice and, you know, develop in your Stoic journey. So to, to start us off, I was wondering if you could just kind of give that broad overview, you know, how did you get into Stoicism? How did you end up where you are today? What did that journey look like in your Stoic path? I think it's, in, well, I think it's interesting. I'll let your audience <laughs> decide whether or not it actually is, but I was a rather large-sized podcaster in the atheism and theism space back in 2012, 2013. I had a podcast called The No God Cast, and we talked a lot about the nature of belief or the lack thereof, and it was this, it was a long-form content show. I think before long-term was really like kind of the standard. Long-term got a lot more popular over the years since then, but we were talking to people like Ray Comfort, who were on the theistic side, of course. And we were talking to people like Sean Carroll, who were very much not on the theistic side. And we were talking to all manner of people in between. And I really loved those conversations. But I found that the atheism community, right at about that time, and this has been corrected since, I just had a great conversation with Hemet Mehta, who was a colleague at the time. And he's told me that that atheism community has settled down a bit in that it's not quite as aggressive as it used to be, but it was at like peak cantankerousness at the time. And I found that my listeners more and more wanted me to be angry and be aggressive towards people who believed. And I really, I didn't like that too much because I, I think my disposition is just that I'm not that guy. I like to be people's friends. I like to not be too, you know, if I disagree with you, I'm going to let you know, but I'm not going to do it in a way that insinuates that I think you're stupid. And, I, and it felt like that's what that community wanted more and more at the time. And so I got kind of burned out. There were other reasons I got burned out, but I walked away from it. And at the time, I knew someone who was the head of Center for Inquiry, DJ Grothy, and he was interested in Stoicism. And so he was my first introduction to the word Stoicism. And this is like 2013-ish. And from there, I 
because I was in a position of kind of reflection and having just walked away from this rather large project of mine, I went and I started a podcast called Epictetus is My Therapist, which if you search for, you actually can still find. And while the episodes, thankfully, are not still available online, they if you use the internet Wayback Machine, you can see like the website and some of the old blog posts. And it's like reading an old journal. <laughs> it's really like, oh man, this is what I thought Stoicism was in 2013. And I, I initially walked away from it a bit because you know, you run into, especially with Epictetus being the starting point, which is probably not the best starting point. He talks a lot about a personal God in a sense, and I'm just walking away from, I'm just walking away from the atheism community and I'm thinking, okay, well, I don't think I'm quite ready to be talking about God in the sense that I think he's talking about something that's like an Abrahamic God at that time, which of course he isn't. And so I shy away a little bit. And then in 2015 or so, I come across Sharon LaBelle's book, The Art of Living, and I thought that book was so exquisitely well done and also extremely brief. I think it might have been 120 pages or so, or it felt short at the time. And at the end of that book, Sharon did such a great job of condensing those ideas into language that was, I guess, more approachable for me that I thought, okay, well, I can, I can continue to be bothered by these you know, words like God and faith and Zeus. I, I can continue to be bothered by those things, or I can just grow up. And, and actually consume these texts in full and try to get more out of it. Because it seems like I'm really short-sheeting myself, so to speak, by walking away just because somebody mentions providence. So at that point, I reread Epictetus, I read Marcus Aurelius, I read some of Seneca's letters, and I realize that there's a lot more to this philosophy. It goes a lot deeper. It's a lot more nuanced than I was giving it credit for at the outset. And then we had a kind of a personal family tragedy on my partner's side of the family. And that kind of threw our lives into a little bit of disarray. We moved around a lot. And fast forward to 2020, we had just moved from Maine. I had closed a recording studio, moved from Maine to Colorado, uh, and was really just doing audiobook work and, you know, consulting work. Uh, I used to be in the audio space. And I was more stressed out and just overwhelmed than I had ever been in my entire life. And upon reflecting on that and trying to figure out what I could do maybe to get back to where I had been because the pandemic I think was you know the same for everybody it kind of sucked and especially for me I lost a business which some other people did as well and I thought well you know I haven't really thought seriously about stoicism in a number of years I've been too busy right that's what it felt like and I'd like to get back to it but I don't know I've read the text and I don't know if that's really going to bring me fully back to it and so I, since I was in podcasting and audio, I thought, well, what if I just start a weekly podcast? <laughs> and so I began every Saturday morning waking up, reading one of Marcus Aurelius' meditations, because that was easy. One of the reasons I started with Marcus was because I knew I knew enough about meditations to not too badly muck up meditations in interpreting it, right? I might get some strong nuance wrong. But I wasn't going to get it so wrong that I wasn't going to be leading people down an incorrect path or something. And so I just started doing that. And people responded well to it, which I never intended. I didn't market the show. I did nothing to seriously try to let people know I was doing it. It was more kind of in the vein of that Epictetus is my therapist podcast where I was doing it for me. And if it helped other people, well, that's great. And it did. It, it attracted a very large Generation Z and Gen Alpha audience. And before the summer, I had 100,000 listens a month. 
And that's not enough to really quit your day job or anything, but it was enough to say, oh, I've really got something here and I should keep doing it because now it's not just about me. Now it's about helping other people. People are obviously getting something out of it. And then came late summer, early fall, and I was up to around 300,000 listens a month. And I thought, okay, well, this is, this is something you could quit your day job for. It wouldn't be a lot of money, but I could pay my rent with it. And it just so happened that at that same time, I was approached by Glassbox, which is the media network I'm part of. And they said, we'll pay you to make this podcast. Come on board with our network and we'll make it your job. And so I've been doing that since October. And the, the, something interesting happened then in that I got this very big, I felt like an imposter in some ways because I, people refer to me as a philosopher of stoicism, but I don't have a PhD. And I'm all, I always try to be very clear with everybody about that. Like, look, I'm not an academic. I've just started really seriously studying these things since last fall, you know, less than a year ago. And I realized that at the time, and I thought, I have to do something about this. And a listener reached out to me and said, Tanner, I really like your show, but I think you could learn a little more. Let me pay some money so that you can be tutored by Kai Whiteman. And I didn't even really know who Kai was. <laughs> so I was like, okay, yeah, sure. I was really open to that because I saw myself as, at this point, like right now, we have more reviews on Spotify and Apple Podcasts in total than Ryan Holiday has on his show. That means technically we're, we might not be more listened to, but we're more reviewed than he is. And as I started to realize that, I thought, I have a responsibility now. Like this isn't just, this isn't just for me and it's not just me doing my best. Now I'm getting paid for it. Now it's my job. I have to really, I, I've got out my game. And so it was kind of serendipitous that that offer was made to me. I was tutored by Kai for a number of sessions. And then it became apparent during the sessions that Kai and I just got on very well. And we became friends and that kind of worked into us writing a book, a couple of books together and me really delving into, I think, what the broader Stoicism community refers to as traditional Stoicism. Whereas before that, because of my atheistic background, I was more like in the modern Stoicism camp because I was still hung up on that well, for a time anyway, I was hung up on that, the, the God aspect, the Stoic God and cosmology, nature is God and all that stuff. And Kai helped me work through that nuance to understand that it really wasn't anything like what I thought it was and has put me pretty firmly in the quote unquote traditional Stoicism camp since then. Long answer to a short question. Sorry. Yeah, no, great. Good answer. So there's, there's, a, there's a couple different ways we could take that or a couple different ways I want to take that. I think to start off, what, what struck me as most interesting about that story I, was this idea that your podcast at the beginning was almost a form of practice, if you will, like this way of holding yourself accountable, being like, I'm going to sit, you know, I'm going to, you know, read a chapter or a, a portion of Marcus Aurelius every day. I'm going to think deeply about it and I'm going to share those thoughts. And, you know, it makes me think of Seneca's letters, right, where, where he's, you know, maybe he's quoting a passage of you know, Epicurus or something like this, and he's reflecting on it. And so it has this benefit. We're reading those letters, but it's benefit. There's this benefit also of this, of this practice of putting it together. And one thing that I'm thinking, so now this is going to be a long question. So bear with you. It's this thing that I think very deeply about. I think very deeply about this question of how, depending on your level of progress or your level of experience, what appeals to you about stoicism is going to look different. And the way you should be presented Stoicism is going to be different. If you present someone who knows nothing about Stoicism, an entirely accurate picture of Stoicism, 
it is not only going to be confusing or challenging, it's going to be ultimately ineffective because it's not going to resonate or connect and people aren't going to practice with it. So some thoughts, some thoughts I have is, I wonder if your show almost benefited from you, you being in kind of a progressing position because you'd be almost wrestling with the same kind of topics or the same intuitions or the same, the same things that seem unintuitive about stoicism to someone who, who is new to stoicism. You'd still be wrestling with those or still empathize with those very much as opposed to someone who takes those for granted. I was having a conversation on Twitter the other day where someone was saying, you know, virtue is such an off-putting word. And I think I've been reading stoicism for so long now that virtue doesn't seem weird to me. I, I've lost that empathy with someone where they, if they read virtue, they might think, you know, that has these Christian connotations or these religious connotations. So I guess, uh, I guess there's, there's two parts to that question. One is, you know, do you think the, the work has benefited from this kind of active progression that you've been taking and, and maybe the humility that comes with that instead of being, well, I am an academic. I already know all of this. Let me tell you. And I guess the second, the second part is how has that informed or changed the work you've done on your podcast, that, that active progression and practice? I think I've absolutely benefited from that. I mean, when I look back and I try to analyze why the podcast is successful, there is no X factor that I can identify other than that. That when it, you have podcasts like Chris Fisher's podcast, Stoicism on Fire, which is so good. But if you're somebody who's new, it might be a little intimidating because of, I mean, Chris is amazing. He's so thorough and he knows so much. He hates to be called a scholar, but, but he is. I'm, I'm calling you a scholar, Chris. <laughs> he knows a lot. Label. Yeah. He knows a lot. And I think that if you're, I feel pretty strongly about this. I think if you're an older millennial or if you're a Gen Zer or a Gen Alpha, this new generation that's coming out, I think that you have really, heightened BS detectors. And I think what you just said about virtue being kind of a strange word, an off-putting word, I think that I think that's definitely on that radar that they have. They think, oh, okay, virtue. So we're talking about, like you said, Christianity. We're talking about Christianity. And so Christianity means that you're going to judge me for not doing the things that get me into heaven. And I'm just completely, virtue ethics are, I don't even see them anywhere. I used to see them in school all the time when I was young. I don't see them anywhere now. Or if they're taught, they're so obfuscated that you can't even tell what you're talking about anymore. So I think that I spoke to people who were looking for were looking for some sort of trustworthy source of information of how to put their lives together and have some kind of meaning in it. Because I think these younger kids, they care a lot. Like they, they just, they want to care. They know that the world has a lot of problems. They want to be part of fixing those problems. And I think that is why they're so easily hijacked by, uh, by various activist groups or by various, like, I mean, I'm not calling Andrew Tate an activist, but he, <laughs> has a, he has an approach to life frameworks that when you have no direction and you think everything sucks, then that might be attractive to you because it's an answer of some kind. But then there are also, on the other side of the Andrew Tate spectrum, there are people who or polar opposites of Tate, but they're moving in a direction that I also don't think is particularly good, right? Like kids who are throwing paint or trying to throw paint on famous pictures because they think somehow that's the answer to, and it's because they're passionate either way and they need some direction. 
And, and I think rather quickly, as soon as the show started to get popular, what I realized was that I had a way to interrupt those two pathways by saying, hey, here's a middle way. And maybe this could be of use to you. Maybe you could find some purpose in your life with this. And, and I think I'm drifting a little bit from your initial question, but I think because it was necessary for me to approach teaching Stoicism from a position of, look, I know I'm not an expert that I had to be open with that. And I had to wrestle with it the way that you said, that I think it was easy for me to appear trustworthy to those people. Because they said, okay, Tanner's not telling us this is what stoicism is, or this is the only way to do it, which is something I get pretty passionate about. People saying that there's only one way to practice stoicism or you're wrong. And I, and I think in that they thought, okay, I can listen to this guy. And, and I, I cannot account for the podcast growth outside of that. It has to be. Uh -huh that I wasn't the expert and that I was struggling through it with them. And that audience has begun to trust me because something really interesting happens when a new listener comes to the show. They listen to the entire back catalog because of the nature of the progression through the meditations they have to. So every new listener takes that journey with me. So by the time they catch up to recent episodes, they're like, oh, well, this is the guy who just started out a year ago or you know, whenever it happens to be when they listen. And he, I can hear him learning and I'm learning along with him. And I think that that matters a lot. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's pretty inspiring when you put it that way. I think that's like, it's pretty motivating too. Because in a lot of what we talk about in Stoicism is also role models. Again, your, your answers are, there's a lot of different directions to take these answers. So one thing that I want to get back to is this idea of the political extremism and looking for kind of a, a middle way or a sense of meaning because you care and you want to direct that somewhere. I, I'm, I want to, I'm going to come back to that. But I, I also think there's this idea of kind of role models and stoicism is something that we push. We talk a lot about contemplation of the sage, but contemplation of the sage is really intense. Really what it is, is kind of emulation, you know, because there's not a lot of sages, but really it is emulation of people or behavior you want to see. And so maybe this behavior of, you know, this kind of humility, this behavior of, of iterating and growing and learning, you know, so this person gets put on this path when they start your podcast but then they're following your path and you're a couple steps ahead. And that's kind of, that can be very motivating for a lot of people. And I think that's a, you know, a reason why a lot of people like Marcus Aurelius, for example, because he's somebody that has doubts and is wrestling. And as you know, he talked about, you know, it's either Providence or it's Adams. And, you know, Stoicism is very clear that it's not, it's not Adams, it's not randomness, but, but he's still wrestling with that. But that gives you time, that gives you, I guess, permission to be in that space as well, that space of wrestling um, with those ideas. One thing, so following up on that, I guess to, to go in that political direction, so there's, there's a couple of things. I think it's connected also to that idea of atheism you were talking about before. Because one of the things I see, when people ask me, why is Stoicism becoming popular? The answer I give is typically, I think people are becoming less religious, but there's also this need for kind of meaning and sense-making. And I, I don't use the idea of bullshit detector, but I think there's this idea where people like something that they're allowed to wrestle with. And what I like about ancient Greek philosophy is you're allowed to question it. You're allowed to argue against it. That's encouraged. That's why I loved when I took philosophy as a major. It, I, th I thought I was in another class. And if you say that seems kind of stupid to me, the professor would be like, stop talking. <laughs> you're in second year. You don't get to call it stupid. But if you're in a philosophy class and you say that sounds stupid to me, the professor goes, why? Like, let's talk about it. You know, there's this kind of confidence to wrestle with it. So that's something that I, I really love about philosophy. But what I wanted to go there is, is so stoicism, people, people, they need meaning. They're looking for a sense of meaning because they care. 
that can draw them into these kind of extremists in either direction, right? So there's this, there's this way of taking this middle ground. But another thing that I've read that you've written about is you've claimed that stoicism is necessarily political or stoicism is something that is political. And so one way of reading a middle ground is kind of this enlightened centrism, apolitical stance. Like I'm in the middle because I don't, I'm not either left or right, or I don't identify with any of this. And I, I think you've, you've, you know, you've written against that. So I'm interested in kind of your views about why you think stoicism needs to be political and how that makes sense in the, in the framework that you've just provided. Sure. I think that's fair. So I first want to clarify that when I say stoicism is political, I mean stoicism calls us to participate in politics. That's what I mean by that. Just in case anybody thinks that I mean, I think stoicism should be politicized. That is not what I mean. And the reason I feel that is, as you know, and probably all your listeners know, stoicism is, is role ethics heavy. And so we, we draw our actions of what is appropriate based on what our roles are. And I think being apolitical is something a person could be, but I believe that in order for that person to be that, that person would be probably rarer than even the sage would be because it would require that their roles ask nothing of them in the participation of the things which affected their, the cosmopolis, whether it's their local micro cosmopolis or the cosmopolis as a whole. And so I feel like as a citizen of, let's, and, and we'll throw out the word cosmopolis and we'll just use a citizen of our city or our country, there are things that I think if we asked ourselves by not participating in some sort of addressing of this, does that speak positively of my character or does it speak negatively of my character? Now, I think that it's definitely possible that there are people who would say, it does not speak negatively of my character or it speaks neutrally of my character. But I think that those people, those would be very rare. And I think a lot of apoliticism, if that's the right word, apoliticalness, I think that that is, I think some of that is rooted in a kind of cynicism and helplessness. And I don't, I don't feel great about that because I, and you know, full disclosure, I feel like that. There are elections here locally that I have not participated in because I've looked at the left option or the right, all of the options, it doesn't really matter. And I've thought, man, there are so many negatives that are going along with the few positives of these particular candidates that I can't, I think it would speak negatively of my character to choose one of them in a choose lesser of two evils kind of way. And I've had a conversation with Chris Fisher about this on my podcast and with Kai Whiting that I think not participating can be a form of participating so long as it's, you know, so long as it is strategically thought out and it's not just, well, I feel hopeless, so I'm not going to participate because not participating is one part of, I guess, apoliticism, but, but, there, but it's got to be to some effect, right? Otherwise, you're just checking out. Or that's my feeling anyway. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, I find that pretty compelling, this idea that you need to participate and what, that, what form that participation looks like is going to change, but to, to cynically check out of the process, if you took a step back, probably doesn't reflect well on your character or probably not the best way your character could be. Probably your character would be better if you were able to kind of check in and take a, take a position that, you know, at the very least resonates with your values, but I guess more robustly is the right one to take if you can, if you can get there and, and get that far. One thing, one thing looking at this, this view of, you know, you progressing over time as you've, as you've got more into stoicism. What has been some of the practical 
changes in your life, either in the way you live, the way you feel about things, kind of what you value. What aspects of self-transformation have you felt as you've done this deep dive? I mean, for me, it's easy. It's this full embodiment, full incorporation of the idea that the thing that really matters is the achievement of a good character. I have said this so many times recently when people ask me questions not too dissimilar from this, that I so badly wish that I had figured this out sooner because of how important I've come to understand it to be. Like it really is about being a good person or striving to become the best person that you can become. And I think some people roll their, would roll their eyes, non-Stoics included, would roll their eyes and say, well, obviously the goal is to become a good person. But the thing is that good person, until I came to Stoicism, was never good, was not defined in a useful way to me. It, it was just this kind of like, okay, well, what the hell does good mean? What does it mean to be a good person? Your parents were like, be good. Okay, well, give me some instruction. And I feel like Stoicism does that because it says, look, Good means acting virtuously, it means making appropriate decisions. It means trying your best to be, to make the moral correct, morally correct decision at all times. N not speaking out of turn, for example, if you don't know how to do something, don't say you know how to do it. If, if you're in a conversation and you don't have anything of value to add, maybe you shouldn't be attempting to add value because that might make things worse <laughs> by you doing that in some ego-based, you know, decision to just to have to be heard because you want to seem smart or something, things like that. And since realizing that my life has become a lot simpler to navigate and my life didn't feel at all simple to navigate when I had lost my business, lost my home, had my car repossessed, moved across the country. Like my life felt very not in my control, which of course, if we're going to use the word control, a lot of stuff isn't not not within my purview of decision making right i couldn't decide i think is the way i like to say that more than control but you know i i felt i felt like i had no path in front of me to that was you know, that was clearly marked with any kind of trail indicators and as soon as and i really credit kai with with this so i i could say that stoicism did this for me but if i hadn't met kai i don't know if i would have figured it out gave me this definition of what it meant to be good and allowed me to lay out in front of me exactly what I needed to do to work towards that. And, and to accept that the point wasn't becoming completely good. The point was to make progress towards becoming completely good, which gives you something to always be doing <laughs> because we're never there. Right? I actually, I wrote this recently in a Substack article that I wrote where I reflected on Marcus Aurelius and the value of journaling, because we have a journaling program. And they said that the sage was as, as rare as the phoenix, right? But they knew the phoenix to be mythical. And I think a lot of academics would not agree with what to say, but they knew the phoenix was a mythical character. So were they saying that the sage was actually not attainable? Kai doesn't like when I say that because he thinks, well, if we think it's not attainable, then we have nothing to work towards, which I totally get. But it's interesting that even the ancients understood that, you know, becoming the sage was kind of the point, but not the practical point that you should have in mind every day. It should be about progress, not about, oh, if I don't get there before I die, I'm a complete failure. I, and I think they understood that. You know, what's that Epictetus as a line, you know, we can't all be Socrates, but we can all, you know, you know, aim to be or, or aspire to and try our best, which I think, I think is, I think is, is the important one. It's, it's really one, one thing I've never thought about before that you put really well 
is this idea that we always have something to be doing because if we're not perfect, there is always, there is always progress to be made. There is always, I guess, I don't know, an action to be participated in. I mean, one thing that, you, that, you, that I'm sure you're aware of is, is the, the way the Stoics would frame virtue as this really unattainable thing, right? Like this, this idea that virtue, we're all equally vicious. So there's the virtuous people and there's the vicious people and there's no degree of viciousness. We're all equally vicious or equally virtuous. And they would use these metaphors of, you know, a straight line is straight and a crooked line is crooked. There's not, this line isn't more crooked or less crooked. Or the other one they would use is the one of drowning. You know, if my head is a foot below water, I'm still drowning. I'm not going to say this, well, I'm drowning less than you. Like, look how great I am. You're still drowning. And maybe there's something to that. I think I, I'm just thinking about this for the first time. Maybe there's almost this like pedagogical or motivational aspect to that of saying like, hey, don't rest on your laurels, right? Like you're all, you're just as vicious as that other person in the sense that you're just as not virtuous. So there's always something to be doing. There's always movement to the, to the water until you reach that, that phase. That's what, that's what that made me think of. And in terms of this progress, in terms of this doing, what are some practical ways that that's affected your life? So you, you've, you've refocused your view to the development of your character and, and how does that manifest either in how you're feeling or things that you're doing or your robustness? What is that? What are some of the rewards or some of, I guess, the rewards, but maybe the benefits of that practice? That you realize how, you know, one of the things that Stoics really get hammered for is this idea of the indifferent or and I feel like your audience doesn't need me to say this, but the pluralized form of indifferent is indifference. And it really sucks that that word sounds like <laughs> indifference, like it's such a pain. But, but, and so what I'm going to say might lead into that, but it really does it shift. It has shifted for me anyway, the way I look at everything which is external to me. I look at what's going on in, you know, XYZ country. I don't want to bring up anything that's a political hot topic at the moment, but I can say, I can ask myself some reasonable questions. I can say, okay, well, how should I behave in response to this? And what does that say of my character? Can I respond to it? Do I have any way to be useful? Is there any, anything within my roles that calls me to participate in this in, in whatever way? Maybe it's giving money. Maybe it's getting physically involved in activism. You know, where is my place in this? And then I, have a, and then I just have an answer of what to do. Whereas before I'd be like, oh, no. There's a war over here and there's tax code problems over here. And like this president's a lunatic. And what do I do about that? But stoicism has helped me to understand that, look, there are things that my roles might call me to do something about, and then I can do them. And then that's my responsibility because that's in alignment with developing a better character. And I think that's the, the most powerful aspect of framing stoicism as a, as a way of answering the question or plotting a course for developing a good character, I think the benefit is that everything else falls into its little bucket and you know what to do with it. And if it's not in a bucket, it's not because you don't care about it. It's because either your role doesn't call you to be involved in it or you don't physically have the ability to do anything about it. And why would you fret about something? Not to say it doesn't matter, but why would you judge yourself negatively for not being involved in something that you couldn't be efficacious in combating or benefiting or, you know, working to make better in, in some way? So I, th I think that's been the, the biggest help for me is I know that I can reason through what my roles are and I can determine what to do when anybody brings anything to me. Hey, 
there's a, a family next, next door to you that's having a really difficult time with, they've got a food shortage or something. Well, hey, I can do something about that. Let me look at my bank account and see what I can do. Or let me look at local initiatives and see what I can do. Okay, I can do something. So let me do that. And then I'm like, okay, well, I've done that thing. I've participated in the way that's appropriate for me and that actually mattered. And that was my job. And, but, but if they say, you know, there's a war in XYZ country, you know, well, what can I do? Do they need money? No, it seems like they've got that. Like they've got the funding they need to carry on with the war. I think everybody knows what war I'm talking about here. <laughs> so you can eat, So what can I do? Well, maybe I could write a soldier a letter. Is there a program for something like that? No. Okay. Well, I guess I really can't do much. So I can put that in this bucket over here where I don't have a particular action to take and I can move on. Not that I don't care, but that I know, at least for the time being, there's nothing I specifically can do about that. And so it's okay for me to move on from it and to do so in a in a guilt-free way. I feel like one of the things that really overwhelms millennials, Gen Z, and Gen Alphas are like, Jesus, everything's wrong. <laughs> Everything is going terribly. I have no idea what to do. And I don't even know, I mean, which thing should I pick to participate in? It must all be the same. But when you bring in role ethics and you start asking you know, questions about like, okay, what do my roles say about what I should do? What can I physically actually do? And, and it's okay for me to stop there because first of all, I can't solve every problem on earth. And second of all, I can't be efficacious in solving every problem on earth. Where I think we've got a lot of this virtue signaling going on, I think is, I don't think, I think people paint virtue signaling as this thing that idiots do, but I don't think that's what it is. I think it's what pe people are virtue signaling because they feel like I have to be involved. I have to do the thing because it's the only thing I can do. And I feel so helpless, hopeless, and lost. So for me, that's what, that's the biggest takeaway for stoicism for improving my own life anyway. Yeah, that's great. I like, I think that, I think there's this interesting way of looking at virtue signaling that you just brought up as like this. I mean, so this is what part of what stoicism says is that you will experience a passion if you think something bad is happening. So there almost becomes this like moral aspect to outrage, right? Whereas like, if you are not outraged, you do not care. And if you do not care, there is something morally wrong with you. But then you end up in this position where you literally cannot I mean, you, you, you could for a very short period of time, maybe, but you can't open yourself up. I mean, there, the stoic argument aside about whether or not this, these are the right things to be upset about, you can't m open yourself up to really, really feel all the suffering across the entire world in any sort of way that lends, that lends you any sort of, as you, as you said, efficacy in actually helping any of those problems. It would just be this kind of overwhelming, I think, this kind of overwhelming suffering if you were to engage in those. So there, there's these kind of two issues at play. There's this kind of equanimity. There's this, look, if I, if I just focus on my roles, I feel better. And that's not to say I never feel deeply. Like, you know, if you have a family tragedy, that will be a time that you will feel deeply that will have to do with your roles and to have to do with indifference in the stoic sense. But then there's also this, as you said, this kind of practical aspect or this, or this effectiveness aspect. And it seems like the stoic solution here might be that I can both be incredibly effective and subjectively suffer as, as little as possible or as only as much as is appropriate if I really, you know, understand those rules. Practice Stoicism with Stoa. Stoa combines the ancient philosophy of Stoicism with meditation in a practical meditation app. It includes hundreds of hours of exercises, lessons, and conversations to help you live a happier life. Here's what our users are saying. 
I'm new to Stoicism and wanted to dive deeper with guidance. This is it. I love the meditations. I've practiced meditations with other apps, but this just seems to be more impactful. Life changer. With Stoa, you can really get a sense of how to take yourself out of your thoughts and get a sense of how to handle different, difficult situations. Find it available for a free download in the Play Store and App Store. My next question to you, which is a genuine question, something I wrestle with. How do you figure out, how do you figure out your roles? How do you pick which ones that you are going to stick to and which ones you're, you're not? Yeah, that's a great question. Before I answer it, I, I want to just say that if you were talking, we were talking about virtue signaling. I think that if anybody was just listening to, to what we both just said and we're thinking, well, no, you have to be involved in any way you can be involved. And, you know, maybe, maybe they agree with that virtue signaling side of the house. Probably not true of your listeners, but, but if there's somebody out there or somebody who has somebody in the family who thinks like that, I think a good question for somebody like that to ask themselves is, if I can't be efficacious, why am I doing this? And I, and I think that the, the answer that has to come back, no matter how much cognitive dissonance there is, is I'm doing it because I don't want to be seen negatively by other people. And then the next question is, why is that important to me? Why, why is the way that I'm viewed by others more important to me than the ability to be efficacious in whatever action I'm, whatever moral action I think I'm taking? And, and because I'm ADHD, I'm going to ask you to re-ask that question so that I make sure that I, that I get, that I, that I don't glaze over in any way. Well, I, now I'm going to do a follow-up. We're going to come back to it. I'm going to do a follow-up okay. to what you just said. I do think, I'm going to push you a bit on that. I think there's another one. I think there's, I think, so I think you can do it for social reasons. I think mm. you can also do it because you don't have great control over your attention yet or your focus yet. I think there, there's one view of like, I, I'm, I'm upset about this because I want to be seen as a person that cares about this. And yes. I think, but I think there's also, I'm upset about this because that's currently what I'm thinking about. And then the question is, well, why is that the thing you're choosing to think about? Are there better things you could be choosing to think about and in terms of your efficiency? So I think I see that, especially, you know, working with like teenagers or something like this, it's like that you're upset about this because you're thinking about this deeply, but it's like, why is this the topic you're thinking about deeply? Is it something that, because it's not the only bad thing going on. Right. So is it something that you're particularly suited to handle? Is it something that is particularly relevant to you in some way? Is it something that you're intentionally choosing to be the thing that's taking up your attention? Or is it just the thing you're kind of, you know, you're seeing on the news or something like that? I think that's a more nuanced way of looking at it. I appreciate that. And I think I agree with you on it. Sure. There is at least there is at least a third way to do Absolutely. Yeah, great. That's very productive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I, great. So the, the the question was, which again, as a genuine question, not as like a, a quiz of, of Epictetus's theory, because it's something I wrestle with in my practice. How do you pick your roles? How do you, so, you know, you say, well, look, what helps me is I, I, I know what my roles are, or I decide what my roles are. And, and that helps me direct my focus in a way that's effective. But then, you know, the kind of kicks the can one level further, which is, you know, what is my role? Is my role to be very involved in political matters? Is my role to be just focused on my family or just at a city level? What's kind of, how do you, how do you do that personally? Not for other people, but how do you do it? Yeah. So I start with my, what I view my personal roles to be. I'm a partner. I'm a dog dad to, to <laughs> two little baby doggos. And so some of what my responsibilities are relate to those roles as a, as a dog dad and a partner. So that will help me to sort things out like how should I prioritize things like anniversary dinners or how should I prioritize things like dog park walks during the day and walks for the dog and potty breaks and such while I'm engaged in 
you know, I mentioned earlier, joking, but quite seriously, that I am ADHD. And so it can be difficult to navigate breaks in, in the workday. And so I, I, have to under, I have to phrase the responsibility to take a break, to take the dogs out or on a walk or whatever it is as, as a role. And so that, that's very small scale, self-related, relationship-related making sure that I've taken off the right days of the week for the anniversary dinners and the date nights and such that that relates to the role of being a partner. And then larger than that, let's say I'm also a renter in a home in Denver and I have neighbors. So I have to look at my responsibilities of my, my role to be a good neighbor. What does that mean? So I gave the example earlier that if my neighbor was suffering from a food shortage or something that I might, I would be in a position to get involved in that. Kai asks a great question if I don't do it, who does? And if the answer is no one else can do it, <laughs> you should probably be doing it if you can't. But also things like I have upstairs neighbors. And so that means that I should be considering how loud my television is at a certain time of the evening, right? Because being a good neighbor might relate to allowing my neighbors to go to bed early if they go to bed a little earlier than I tend to and watching the volume of music or television or you know whatever I've got going on in the house, planning a house party, something like that. And then we can extrapolate it out further to my street. What's my role for the small street that I'm on, this like little thousand foot stretch of street and all these neighbors I have? Well, maybe when I'm walking, I have a responsibility to pick up trash when I see it in someone's yard or on the sidewalk or if somebody who hasn't picked up their dog poop, which <laughs> happens far too frequently, Denver, get with it. Maybe if I don't pick it up, clearly the person who left it there is not going to pick it up. So maybe I should do that. And beyond my street, we have local businesses. What's my responsibility to those local businesses? Well, it's not necessarily my role to ensure that businesses survive. But if I don't ensure businesses survive in my local, you know, one mile, two mile radius, who does? So maybe I have a responsibility to, when I think about getting a coffee, maybe it's appropriate for me to go to Copper Door next to the Botanical Gardens on Monday. And then when I get a coffee the next morning, go to Downpours, which is right at the end of my street. And then the next day, go to, Col you know, Hooked on Colfax, which is another coffee shop. And maybe if I go to Starbucks, I limit that support because Starbucks needs it less than these little mom and pop shops. So I can view the responsibility of maintaining the local business economy. If I decide that that's a role of mine, if I'm in a position to pay, you know, $5 for a cup of coffee instead of a dollar, which I could do at the gas station or by making it at home. But there are other considerations there because the coffee bean industry has some slavery aspects to it. So is the coffee fair trade? Because I can control whether or not I buy non-fair trade coffee or fair trade coffee. And I think that my desire to build a, a good moral character has to ask those questions. So that's, that's part of figuring out my rules as well. And then extrapolating to local politics. Well, you know, there are some ordinances that are up for voting. Like, for example, I just learned the other day that this bougie neighborhood next to our neighborhood, which is kind of like part of our neighborhood, but it's the bougie part, mm -hmm. which I don't live in, that they got really upset because pickleball players were using their tennis courts to play pickleball instead of tennis. And I guess pickleball is too loud for those people. So they're like trying to put up an ordinance where you can't play pickleball at the tennis ball courts. And so I have to decide what is my, what is my role in getting involved in that? It, do I have one as, as a citizen of, of, of Denver? end of this particular small neighborhood, Congress Park, and whatever that answer is that I, that I move forward with that. In that particular case, because I don't live near there, I'm not affected by it, and I'm not a pickleball player, I probably don't have a role. 
But when voting on things like drug addiction issues and homelessness issues, of which we have a lot here in Denver, and you know social concern issues, I think that I, as someone who's affected by them, as someone whose neighbors are affected by them, I think that, well, here I am, a citizen, a neighbor of these people, someone who sees these things on a daily basis. Do I have a responsibility to be involved in them? I think so. How can I be involved? Well, maybe that's donating, or maybe that's voting on an ordinance or a bill that's up for to be passed. And is it a protest? I mean, I'm, I don't feel like my disposition makes me a very good protester. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't do chants. I don't own a bullhorn. I'm not inclined towards that, but I am inclined towards giving money and voting. And so it helps me figure out what I should do in those situations as well. I, I can go further than that, but I think maybe that's enough for the, for the sake of your question. Yeah. I mean, those are good examples. Yeah. Those are great. And gives people kind of a, I don't know, a, a practical example of what an application of world ethic looks like that isn't, you know, Epictetus using these examples of, you know, you're a philosopher, so don't cut your beard. And they end up with these kind of dated examples sometimes. Uh, so well, well, so, so wait, let me add to that because another responsibility that people, I think, maybe role that people wrestle with is their jobs. I know a lot of people don't like their jobs. And so they choose to not do a great job at their job because they're mad that that's the crappy job they have. And, you know, I can feel, first of all, I have to say that I'm fairly lucky that my job is content creation and podcasting and talking about philosophy, stoicism in particular. I love my job. But there are definitely days where I wake up and I'm like, Jesus, I've, you know, we do seven episodes a week and there are some Wednesdays or Thursdays that I'm like, do I really... Do I really have to do a one and a half hour mailbag episode for my listeners? And sometimes the answer is, yes, you have to. This is the role you accepted. These are your responsibilities to fill. And sometimes that outweighs the, well, you also have a role to take care of your own mental health. And sometimes it's okay to need a break. And so which of those two responsibilities wins out? And sometimes it's you know, you suck it up, buddy. You promised you would do this. You got to do a mailbag episode. And sometimes it's, I'm feeling pretty burned out and I don't think the mailbag episode would be particularly good. So maybe I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't do it just yet. So I think that raises an interesting point, which is this idea that our roles are not, I don't know, I would, I would want to use this term intersectionality, right? Like they intersect in ways that are interesting. So, and that's when things get complicated, right? Because, you know, you've booked an anniversary dinner on the same time when there's, I don't know, there's a vote. I don't know the example, but these things can conflict, right? And what you're bringing up as an example of, you know, it's all fine and good when it's like, should I, I'm on a walk, should I pick up my dog poop because it's like nice to my neighbors or not? It's like, yeah, you should probably do that. And you're probably a worse person if you don't. But it gets kind of messy when it's like, uh, you know, I, I should do a good job at this work because it's important to, to, to do a good job at the job you've committed to. But, you know, I have, I have burnout or mental health considerations or self-care considerations or, you know, how do I choose between this something at work and something in a relationship and, and these kind of balancing these kind of factors is, is a complicated part. My general impression is that the Stoics would okay, be okay with it being complicated. And my general impression is that people kind of have a tendency to, there's this real appeal to something like utilitarianism where it's like, well, just pull out your calculator, you know, and do some quick math. And if one number is higher, do that one. And there's, there's just something messy about this. And there's something messy about this. I think the Stoic answer too would be that the the messiness is is more messy as you're progressing as well. It becomes there becomes less messy situations as you become more confident in your stoic practice, more clear in your stoic values. But at the start, there'll be a lot of that messiness, and I think that's just okay. I'm I'm all right with that. Although I think it can be off-putting for some people who you know maybe 
going back to Christianity, I don't know. I don't know a lot about Christianity, but maybe much more comfortable with some kind of like you know, set down, defined rules. One thing I was I was thinking about off that conversation is I often think about how Stoicism has this missing middle. So there's a lot of great things that Stoicism has to say if you're, you know, really upset, really suffering, really really down on your luck, really frustrated. Then there's this, you know, this picture of the perfect person. And then there's this kind of complicated, well, what do I do to get there? How do I do, how do I navigate that middle part, that progression part? I think you've, you've just laid down really succinctly and well what that might look like, or at least part of what that looks like. But I want to frame this the, the other way, which is what, what mistakes have you seen either in your own practice or in, with your listeners or people you've engaged with in the community? What common pitfalls or mistakes do you think people fall into when they're navigating this middle part or they're, they're taking their stoic journey? Oh, that's a good one. I'm thinking probably that it, that they approach it without understanding that Stoicism is highly contextual. So you just gave the example of what if there's a vote, but it's all but it's on the same day as anniversary night, right? So I think that, and then you mentioned that people want these absolute answers and approaches to things in this very utilitarian view, and I agree with that. I think people do want that. And I think that's part of why Stoicism seems attractive at the outset to a lot of people is that it can give off that it is that. But in the event of a date night and, a, and voting being on the same day, well, that's not happening within a vacuum, right? You can, you, can, you can ask yourself, well, if I don't vote, who's going to? And the answer is a lot of people. And then, and then the next question you can ask is, well, if I don't take my girlfriend out for our anniversary or whoever your partner is, who's going to do that? Well, hopefully not my neighbor. <laughs> Right. But also you can you can go to your partner and say, hey, I, I know we scheduled this. I'm feeling like I sh should maybe vote. And that would mean we'd have to push our dinner off till tomorrow. Are you OK with that? And then depending on you know what your partner thinks about that, you can make a, a decision. So I think that one of the one of the things that people approach stoicism with, I don't, I don't want to call it wrong, but I would say can be more well informed as they get deeper into it, is that it's highly contextual. I don't think the stoic path is the same for any single person because no single person has the same roles, no single person has the same capacities, at least not in totality. And so, you know, the answer to your country going to war, let's say the U.S., goodness forbid, went to war or Canada went to war, that you, people are like, well, then our duty is to become soldiers. Now, well, no, wait a minute. <laughs> I mean, that's great. You think that cool. But maybe if you're a teacher who's never fired a gun in their life, are you going to make a very good soldier? Or is, do, you have a, do you have a better impact by saying, okay, I'm a teacher, so maybe I need to not be a soldier. I need to try to, con I need to, try to continue to educate people because that's also important. You know, this idea that, that there's only one way to be a Stoic is I think the, the idea that people approach Stoicism with, and I think some of these traditional Stoicism groups can seem at the at the entry point, right? It can seem like they're kind of saying that because they put a lot of a lot of really heavy, deep stuff up in the front. James Daltrey does this. James Daltrey and I have recently <laughs> become like we're not enemies in any way. In fact, we've come to find out that we're kind of more similar than, than we are different through our conversations. But so, just to interrupt you, for those that don't know, James Daltrey, I don't know if he, I don't think he has a website or he doesn't anything. he's brilliant he should he knows he knows so much about stoicism yeah. and he posts incredibly regularly but only on facebook i've seen but he, yeah. he he's incredibly knowledgeable so that's that's james if you're on the facebook 
stoicism scene. You've maybe seen it, but he's got a lot of great stuff to say. But sorry, that's some context. Well, so he recently joined. We had a bit of a fracas on 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 his in his Facebook group, and then I invited him to join our Discord community, and he has. And we have a theory channel, and James has become like the king of the theory channel because that's the stuff he knows really well. But I think that when you first come to stoicism, if you hit traditional stoicism first and you're not versed in philosophy just in general, you don't really know what stoicism is, what you wind up with is like, oh man, okay, there's a very specific, correct way to be a stoic. That's not what some, somebody like James would say, but it's what some somebody like James would say. That it would seem like what they were saying. Uh, and I think that that is part. So one of the reasons that Kai and I are writing Stoicism But Brief is because we thought, okay, what we need is Ryan Holiday is like this life hack kind of character, right? And Kai says this to me all the time that his book Obstacle is the Way doesn't use the virtue doesn't use the word virtue a single time, which mm -hmm. is which seems like a travesty that you could be the best selling book, quote unquote, on Stoicism and not talk about virtue at all in the pages of that book. So what we're thinking is that we need somebody who, James Daltrey is like king of nuance and detail, right? That's what I feel like. And then we have somebody like Ryan Holiday, who's like king of marketing and top of the funnel, but tends to lead people away from traditional stoicism, which is where I think most of the benefit is and like steers them off into, I don't know, life hacky stoicism. We're writing this book because we think what we need is what the world, what the cosmopolis would benefit from is is a top of the funnel, so to speak, that was accurate, but also accessible and written in plain language. Because if you compare the way that I write to the way that James Daltrey writes or the way that Chris Fisher writes, vastly different. But I feel like if you're someone who has no experience with stoicism, you're more likely to continue down the educational funnel and get to people like James and Chris if I'm the first guy you meet or Kai is the first guy or that kind of accessible language is the first language you come across. Yeah, totally. So, you know, for those that might not be as involved in the kind of the, the, I guess I would say, I don't know, the stoicism kind of ecosystem of, of kind of who's, who's sitting where, or who's kind of, I guess, appealing to which audiences there's, there's a fear with Ryan Holiday and Ryan Holiday, I, I think is somebody who is, I would say he's a popularizer. So he's somebody who provides a lot of people their first introduction to stoicism. As you said, there's this kind of risk that you can get the wrong picture of it, or you can think, okay, it's about I think of it as like these kind of tools in my tool belt, but I haven't changed at all. I've just learned that when something bad happens to me, I can think, oh, obstacle is the way. And I always use this example. Kant has this really good example of like, unless you're doing it for the right reasons, none of these things are good. Like you don't want a, a very courageous thief or a very courageous serial killer. That courage isn't beneficial, you know? Your capacity to turn obstacles into benefits is not great if, if it's an obstacle to your robbing a bank. You know, this is not... So you, you, you need to be careful without these sitting into a larger system. But at the same time, if you approach the larger system at the very start, it can be boring. It can be alienating. It can seem exclusionary. There's a lot of, there's a lot of kind of impediments. So what I'm hearing you to say is like, look, you need this introductory text. You need this kind of the start of your journey, but you want it to lead you, you know, lead you in the right direction so that there's not this kind of gap or these misconceptions when you decide to go deeper. Or if you decide to go deeper, you, you, you know, you have that strong foundation. Um, well, I also think that it's the reason why, like, you'll get people who came into Stoicism vis-a-vis -vis Ryan Holiday. And I, I hate to paint him as a bad character here. I've never met Ryan. I'm sure he's a very nice man. He may even be more, quote unquote, devout in his personal Stoic practice than he seems to be in his writing. And he definitely is 
the front of any funnel that leads to so stoicism. I mean, to say that he's he's popular is to understate how popular he really is. But I think that the reasons that things like dollar sign S Silicon Valley type stoicism and broicism exist is because there's this disconnect between what Ryan Holiday says and what stoicism actually is, such to the extent that when people start to get into traditional stoicism and they hear things like God and virtue and they hear about the world city, they might think, oh, that's the new world order, <laughs> right? Like this, when they hear about Zeno's Republic, they think, oh, this is just anarchy. This is socialism. Like they, they would be like, where are these things coming from? These people don't know anything about stoicism. It's Ryan Holiday that's really got it figured out, which is completely the, it's completely the opposite of what you care about is like a full picture of what stoicism as a philosophy is. You have to talk about virtue. You have to talk about virtue ethics, role ethics, and it gets really deep. So I worry that with Ryan being the, I, I and again, not to paint him as a bad character, but I don't think we'd have as much division if Ryan wasn't as popular as he is, because he really, he, he led the charge, didn't he? I don't know when he wrote that book, but I think it was even before Stoic Week was a thing, because I remember Ryan Holiday being a name in the early 2010s when Massimo, when Massimo was just like starting with Stoic Week, which is, the, which is how I first came into contact with Massimo. Yeah, it really is. In my mind, it's really like Stoicism. You, you know, when you tell that timeline of Stoicism, you're like, there was ancient Greece, there was Rome, then there was nothing, then there was the Renaissance. So people got into it again a bit there. Then there was like Sharon LaBelle and Bill Irvin with A Guide to the Good Life. Uh, and then there was another little gap. And then, and then, you know, yeah, then Ryan Holiday and then the modern Stoicism community. And so that, that, kind, of, that kind of second echo after that. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree with you. I, I agree with you. And there's this kind of weird calculus on the benefit of, of again, not to like, and, and the last thing I want to do as somebody, because one thing I really admire uh, talking to Tanner is this kind of humility. And it's, you said, you know, you're not a kind of, you're not an argumentative guy. You're not a person who likes to say, you know, this is how things need to be. And that's the thing that I wrestle with in my own practice, because I feel like sometimes it can be taken to be like ignorance or like, wow, this person isn't certain, so they don't know, or this person isn't certain so that they they know less than the person who is certain. So I'm going to go talk to, I'm going to go listen to that person instead. But, but it's something that I admire in the way that you talk about stoicism and the way that you write about stoicism. It resonates with me because uh, as you said at the start of that kind of bullshit detector, I get very cautious about people who seem really, really solidified and don't seem like they're, they're questioning. So I guess where I was going with that is that because we're still learning, I don't want to be like judgmental or exclusionary of people who, you know, either were exposed to Ryan Holiday at the start or really love Ryan Holiday still. That's not, that's not really the intention here to be like up on this like elitist cloud or anything like that. I think, as you said, though, there, there is, because there is value to kind of deep, this, this deep, robust stoicism, because there is value, there is going to be a harm if people are getting funneled away from that in any sense. And that's just, that's just the way it is. It doesn't have to be any more or less elitist than that, right? Well, and, you know, it's a little bit of... When somebody becomes a vegan or when somebody starts CrossFit or when somebody finds God or when somebody figures out what stoicism really is in its totality, there's kind of an excitement around it and the desire to want to get other people to see the benefit of those things. And so it can seem arrogant, right? P people might think, who the hell does Tanner think he is taking a shot at Ryan Holiday? You know, like, what, who's, who's Tanner? He barely, he doesn't even have a book yet. He just got a stupid podcast. Like, and I, and I understand that. So I'm not. But I, I'm excited about what transitioning from this very, I wouldn't say broic, but I guess to some extent, 
broic view of stoicism from the very early days of me running into it to being what I am now, I'm like, oh, I was really missing so much and I would really like it if, and I think other people would benefit if they could shortcut that mm -hmm. little journey and get right into this. And I, I hope that it doesn't come off as arrogant or as me thinking I, I know more than Ryan Holiday. At the same time, I don't think Ryan Holiday has studied Stoicism in the, in the same way that I have. And I don't think that his aims are the same. And I think that it's important to point out that there are multiple ways to approach Stoicism and to implement it. And, and I'm very nervous about that because anybody listening is going to be familiar with, with fallacies because we're all philosophy-minded people. You know, the no, the no true Scotsman fallacy is something I'm very wary of because it's an elitist position that there's only one way to be a Stoic. And I think the no true Scotsman is true Scotsmen don't put sugar in their porridge, I think is the original, is the original mm -hmm. story. Well, I put sugar in my porridge and I was born in Scotland. Well, no, you're not a real Scot. And, and I think that that just leads to, it leads to this in-group, out-group stuff that, that we do kind of have within the Stoicism community that I wish we did not. But when people get excited or passionate about the thing that's changed their life or that they view to be able to change their life, that, I mean, maybe that's not avoidable. It just kind of happens. But just for, for clarification, there's, there's many ways to be a Stoic. There are many paths within Stoicism, many ways to walk that path. But it is important that we, I, we recognize that there are paths which are not Stoicism. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so there are multiple Stoicism paths, quote unquote, but there are also many other paths that are not related to Stoicism at all, even if on that path you do something like negative visualization. Okay, that's Stoicism inspired, and that's fine, but that's not Stoicism because Stoicism is this thing over here, and within that thing are many, many subcategories of being and acting and practicing, but it's within this sphere, and if you're not within this sphere, then that's not Stoicism. That's something else, and that's okay. Yeah, that's well put. The, I like, it's okay. There's just, there needs to be kind of a clarity to that as well. And so let's, let's, so I'm interested in your journey in that stoicism sphere. So, okay, so there's that stuff over there. That's not stoicism. Maybe stoicism inspired, but he has some of the tips, the tricks, the life hacks. Then there's stoicism. I, one thing we hit on the start, but really interested in this kind of, uh, this reconciliation, I guess, with traditional stoicism or this movement from host of atheism podcast, rejecting providence or stoic God to maybe viewing those differently. Well, it, maybe accepting them. I mean, I'm interested in your view, maybe accepting them, maybe accepting them with caveats. How have you, do you consider yourself a traditional Stoic as in someone who, who embraces the, the theology and the physics of it? Or if not, why not? I guess, yeah, tell me more about that. I think I'm on the way is the answer to that question. I, I, if I had to identify, I would say I'm more of a traditional Stoic than I am a modern Stoic. But with all things being, if they're zero, one, right, I'm, I'm in the process of becoming a one instead of zero. Zero in binary sense. I'm not calling modern Stoics zeros, just to be clear. But I think my, my hang up now is that I, I believe because the conceptualization of the Stoic God as I view it is that the universe is its own species or phylum of animal or organism. And I think that that might be a little metaphoric but maybe also it's not metaphoric. I think looking at a universe as a sort of functioning organism or system is 
a reasonable thing to do. It, it would not be like any other organism or system that existed like a zebra or a human being or a giraffe or something. However, I can see how some people would be uncomfortable with that. Ultimately, the way I see the Stoic God being explained, at least at this far, this far into my study, is that if a system is to function and survive, that system must be designed in a way that it can function and survive, which would have some ramifications that would seem like they were, they were divinely ordered or they were logically ordered. So if we look at the, you know, the cells inside a human body or just all human pro processes within our bodies, it seems real logical, right? But I think that might be a human thing that we're doing to the system we're looking at. But one thing that does seem to be the case is that if a system's going to survive, it has to be able to function, which means it, it is ordered in a particular way that helps it function and survive. And so in a way, I'm, and I'm having a hard, I have a hard time thinking through this, maybe even articulating it if you can't tell, but I think it's reasonable to say that the system we live in, the organism of the universe is structured in a way that enables it to live. And so I think as human beings who kind of anthropomorphize things that we can say, okay, that we can call that logically ordered, even if that's borderline metaphorical. And so I don't think the stoic concept of God violates my position as an atheist, because I think it might have a little metaphor in it and people might take it a little too literally, but I don't think even if it was taken incredibly literally that it's, that, that it violates atheism because atheism is, I don't believe in supernatural gods who like ask for money and demand my prayers or I'm going to hell or I'm going to go to heaven if I'm good. I think what atheists are more against is kind of the ravages of organized religion and usually related to Abrahamic religions because no atheist feels very strongly about Sir Nunez from, you know, like Irish mythology. Nobody's like really pissed off that anybody ever believed in that. It's, it's always... It's always Islam or Christianity or Catholicism or something. And I just don't feel like the Stoic God is, I don't feel like the Stoic God violates an atheistic viewpoint if, if I understand atheism to be as I understand it, which is disbelief in supernatural gods. I don't even look at the Stoic God as being, I mean, if you're saying it's the universe and its nature, then we're not even saying it's supernatural. We're just saying it's the space we live in and the fabric that we're pressed up out of. I mean, that's just a, it's such a, it's such a different concept of God that again, I just, I feel like you can be an atheist and believe in the Stoic God as absurd as that sounds because the word God is in the sentence, but there it is. Yeah. I'm really a big fan of, of etymology, you know, just big fan of language. So it's, it's, you know, when you say supernatural, right? Like that's, that's, that means separate to or above the natural, right? Like, I mean, you pointed that out, but it's like, yeah. If if you if you disagree with a supernatural god, there's no issue with Stoicism because there there won't be any claim to something kind of abstract to nature outside of nature, right? There's this the god god is nature, and then there's this other point here about I I, I say you might know more about this or you certainly do, but like there's this anthropomorphized gods that they're typically associated with Abrahamic religions that the issue with those things of you know this person's looking down and they're angry or I need to kind of appease them or these kinds of positions. And then as you said, I think very insightfully, something I hadn't thought of before is that it might not just be a philosophical claim, but there's kind of a sociological claim about when people tend to believe in these kinds of gods, they tend to organize themselves politically or socially 
in ways that at the very least, you know, you want to say for better, or for worse, at the very least would be different than what it would look like if people socially organized themselves around a stoic God, right? Because there would be no kind of, I don't know, some differences, there would be no, I intuit their will, or I'm speaking with them, or I know what this God wants that, that you don't have access to, or some, some of those implications. And I don't know that I speak for all atheists when I say this, but I would imagine that I would speak for a lot of them, that the, I think the fundamental core point of friction between theism and atheism is the idea that the definition of what a good person is, if you believe in the Christian God, for example, is if Jesus would do it, or if God, the supernatural being would do it, then it is good. Or if they'd approve of it, then it is good. So then it becomes, well, does God think this war is good? Yes. Okay, then it's a good war. Does God think this genocide is good? Well, our interpreters seem to say so. So then it is good. So it's, it's, the, it's interesting to me that theists have this idea that good or virtue, we'll just say good in the Christian sense, is objective morality because it's not. It's subjective morality, and the subjective individual is God, right? Mm. So it's not objective. It's all up to this guy's, if that's what you believe, it's all up to this guy's opinion. And then if you agree with the opinion of God, which is subjective, although they would argue that, of course, that then, then you're good. That's the definition of good if you're doing what God tells you. I think that is the thing that bothers most, most atheists is that, well, there's more nuance than that. And I think Stoicism respects it because, again, the contextual and nuanced nature of Stoicism is who are you? Where are you in the world? What are your roles and responsibilities defined by those roles? And does do these decisions with all those things considered, are those moral decisions? So it's extremely flexible. It doesn't have any edicts. You know, It doesn't have any decrees read by an angel with a trumpet. And so I think that if you really pressed an atheist in the cosmology of Stoicism, they might have some scientific arguments, but I think they'd be limited. And I don't think that they would really have a lot of theological sticking points because they'd be like, okay, well, I didn't really understand that that's what the Stoic God was. And I would, I'm as uncomfortable with that, I think an atheist would say they're as uncomfortable with that part of Stoicism as they would be with something like pantheism Mm -hmm. or like believing that, you know, in diet, in what are they called? dirads or something when a tr- like tree spirits mm. like i think like, it's something more like believing nature is holy and i think stoics have a have way i think athe- atheists have way less issues with thinking like that although it still may be to them off-putting it's not off-putting in the same way as you know thinking there's a guy on a cloud that exists outside of the galaxy and the universe that is telling us you know who we're allowed to have sex with for example yeah yeah no great are you, are you familiar with the with Euthyphro, the Platonic dialogue? Uh, I am not. No, I've not. So this one is like Plato's. Basically, the story is Socrates goes to goes to the courthouse. He bumps into a guy, and Socrates does. He's going around bugging people. Bumps into a guy. Says, "Hey, what are you doing?" He's like, oh, "I'm here to like testify against my father." And Socrates is like, "Whoa, you're testifying against your father?" And he's like, "Yeah, because my father did something unjust." And he's like, "You must, you must know what justice is." If you're willing to put your father in jail, you must really understand what justice is. Tell me about it. I'm, I'm Socrates. I know nothing. I want to know what justice is. And here you are, you know, condemning your father. So you must be the, you must be the guy to talk to. This is you throw. Um, I really love that, that Socrates always in the back of his head must have honestly been like this idiot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's some irony. There's definitely Socratic irony as, as a theme in these dialogues. But basically, 
the the question is, and he says, well, you know, the gods, well, my father, I can't even remember what the father did, but when my father did, the gods said it's wrong. And these are the ancient Greek gods, right? So, you know, Zeus and, you know, these anthropomorphized multiple gods. And Socrates, basically what Socrates pushes him to is this question of, is, you know, is it, is it wrong because the gods said it was wrong or was it wrong and the gods knew, the gods perceived that it was wrong and then told you? So basically our gods, are they value discoverers? Are they the people that perceive the value that it already exists without them and then tell you? Or are they value creators? Is it right or wrong? Because, and he pushes the example, right? Like in these examples of, you know, if God said, yeah, that war was good or that sexual assault was good, does it become good? Or is there this point where you could disagree with God because goodness and wrongness exist outside of, as you put it, the, the will, the subjective will, right? Because it is incredibly subjective in ancient Greece. It's like, there's no, there's no, it, it, there's no ambiguity there when it's, when it is Zeus or Athena, these are people, these are kind of, you know, characters, right? They have personalities or, or interests. So it, it really made me think, it made me think of that, this, this question of, God as a, as a value creator or God as a value discoverer and, and, and the implications of God being a value creator, as you said, are quite substantial with something like a, you know, a wholly justified war, no matter what happens or things like this. Right. And I think that falls into the category of, you know, I feel like people who feel and believe that way, that they don't run into these. It's a question like, well, if God created the universe, who created God? It's it's a question like, well, if God said it was good, doesn't make it not objective morality, but subjective morality. Like they don't take it that extra step. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that again, I just think that those are the things that really tick atheists off. Is a is is a lack of logic in in their eyes. And I don't feel like the Stoic God or Stoic logic for 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 that matter, which I would love to dive into if I were smarter, but I'm not. That that I think that that is why. Stoicism became popular within the atheist community, which you would almost think wasn't possible mm -hmm. when it did in the early 2010s with Stoic Week and such. It was, in, in retrospect now, it's so interesting to me that so many atheists were like, oh, Stoicism, terrific. <laughs> and, and then birthed from the, oh, there's divinity and there's God in this. Oh, no, we got the modern Stoic movement that was like, okay, well, let's just cut that part off. Which is like fair, you can do whatever you want. I'm not judging you. Ultimately, I think the important claim in Stoicism is virtue is the only good. And I think that even though traditional Stoics would disagree, and A. A. Long said that ethics were parasitical upon the the physics and the cosmology, and and while I believe that that is true, I'm not going to stop modern Stoics from if you move on from virtue is the only good and you behave in that capacity. I still think you're going to wind up being a terrific person, and I think that's good for the planet and for the for human for the human race and for everybody else for that matter. But that argument between do you need to believe in the Stoic in order to be quote unquote a Stoic? I think the answer is like if you're defining Stoic full bore all three legs of Stoicism, then I, I think the answer is yes. But I don't know that it's a useful argument to be having if if our goal is for people to just become virtuous and good people, let's not debate this highly academic issue down here, or at least let's give them a few years to ramp up before they have to dive into the deep end and have that argument with themselves. Yeah, that's something that's something that 
Caleb pointed out in a podcast that we were doing, which I think is helpful, which he has this kind of general heuristic of, you know, if if this thing we're arguing about, would it would it cause me to act differently? It would have caused me to feel differently. It would cause me to live my life differently. And if the answer to those are no, then we should probably not worry about it too much, at least as you said, at least not in the short term. And if you have people kind of acting as if virtue is the only good, you know, maybe there's a question to dive into there later. Maybe that's something that you can turn to deeper in your Stoic practice, these questions of theology and God, at least the Stoic God. But you know, in the interim, if this is providing, you know, coming back to this idea of practical stoicism in the interim, if this is helping you feel better and do better by other people, you know, that's something that I, I think it's kind of mission accomplished, right? So I want to, I want to end off with one last question, which is basically, you know, for those listening, they, 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 they hopefully got a lot of value out of our talk. They're like, I want to, I want to hear more about what Tanner has to say. You know, what do you, what do you have going on? You got your, your, you know, podcast, your upcoming book. Maybe if you could talk a bit about those, let people know where they can find out more about you. Sure. Absolutely. And thank you for asking. That's kind of you. So Practical Stoicism is the podcast. You can find it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and, and probably anywhere that you listen to podcasts, although we're a little behind on uploading to YouTube. We're not a video-centric podcast, so we're kind of, we're kind of lax on that. But all the audio-only spaces you can find us pretty easily. Just search for Practical Stoicism. We're also, Kai Whiting and I are co-authoring a book called Stoicism, but brief, which I mentioned briefly, ironically, <laughs> but, but it's meant to be this entry-level point that dives into Stoic logic physics and ethics and the cosmology with physics, but does so in plain language because we, we didn't really talk about this much, but you know, I, I was a high school dropout, I was a college dropout, I was homeless for a time. I know what it's like to approach a text that is written above my head and how that can, that can be really off-putting. And so we, we were, Kai and I were really sensitive to the idea that this be written in accessible language that didn't make people feel dumb because it's easy to do, which I don't think academics do intentionally. They're just smart as hell. And they've got these great words to describe things that they understand, which goes into something you were saying earlier about, like, when I hear virtue, it's not a weird word to me, but it might be weird to other people. Although we do use the word virtue quite frequently. So it's meant as a, we think it's a great entry level to stoicism. And we think it's more, we think of it as a accurate, accessible, and well, I guess those two things, brief, also brief, <laughs> entry. So, so that somebody can pick it up and read it in an hour or two if they're a fast or slow reader. And they can, they can answer the question, is stoicism for me and do I want to learn more? Or is this enough to let me know that this isn't really my thing and I'm going to go look somewhere else? Because answering that question, yes or no, I think is valuable. It, if, if it seems interesting to you, we want you to be part of this stoicism club, if we're calling it that. And, and if you think it's silly and, and stupid, well, at least you figured it out in a couple of hours instead of you know, spending months or years on it. And we think there's a value. To it. And then we have a Discord community and a Substack. Our Discord community is at stoicismpod.com forward slash Discord. It's got nearly 700 people in it now. It's a great space. We've got people like James Daltrey, who I talked about, but we've also got people like Judy Stove and Donald Robertson are in there and just tons of people who are at all varying levels of their education in stoicism. And so it's a fun place to hang out and talk to others. And I love, it. I think it's grown so fast and I would love for you to join it if you're interested. And our Substack is at stoicismpod.substack.com. We also just launched that about a month ago and that's, that's free as well. So please, articles written there by myself and Kai Whiting and we're bringing on 
uh, William Stevens to to do some stuff on stoicism and pop culture, for example, stoicism and Dungeons and Dragons, which I think is going to be like a really interesting exploration of fate, because what is Dungeons and Dragons, if not somewhat the fate of a roll of dice? So I think that'll be really interesting. So stoicismpod.com has links to all those things and follow us wherever you'd like to. And I'd love to get to know you and have you be part of our community. Awesome. Tons of great stuff going on. That's exciting. And uh, yeah, thanks again for, for being a part of the show. It was great talking to you. You too, man. I hope I can come back one day. Awesome. We can make that happen. Great. Thanks, Tanner. Thanks for listening to Stoic Conversations. If you found this conversation useful, please give us a rating on Apple, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you use, and share it with a friend. We are just starting this podcast, so every bit of help goes a long way. And I'd like to thank Michael Levy for graciously letting us use his music. Do check out his work at ancientliar.com, and please get in touch with us at Stoa at stoameditation.com if you ever have any feedback or questions. Until next time.